For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The scandal over Swanley's foggy bottom kitchens at state parks is getting deeper. Oklahoma is filing a lawsuit against Swanley's, and the Department of Tourism director Jerry Winchester has resigned. Meanwhile, the company's owner, Brent Swanley, says he's the victim here and denies all allegations. Plus, attack ads have come out blaming Governor Stitt for the scandal. Neva, how badly could this hurt Stitt's re-election attempt? Well, I think it's just an ongoing scandal, as I think it's being described almost by everyone at this point, and something that remains to be seen on the political side. But as we every day wake up, we see new revelations. I mean, and we see the intensity on the part of the legislators to really dig into finding out the facts. And I think the fact that uh, uh, Speaker McCall uh, last week launched this special committee to investigate, uh, this committee will have power to subpoena witnesses and documents. It's a bipartisan 15-member committee. I mean, that would give anyone pause on the outside that thinks that there's not going to be uh, a high level of scrutiny go on and try to figure out uh, really all of the missing pieces. And and again, these revelations, I mean, when you have one at one moment, uh, the governor, lieutenant governor come into a press conference for five minutes, take no questions, uh, throw down the gauntlet, file a lawsuit, and then you continue to see revelations uh, that are spinoffs of really the Swadley's uh, deal. And now we see a a land purchase near the Lake Murray Mm -hmm. State Park by the former deputy director of tourism, uh, Gino DeMarco, and all that's swirling around that. So I think we're going to, I think we're going to be talking about all of this for a long time to come and well past these elections, starting with the primaries at the end of June. And Ryan, he has an opponent right now who is trying to attack Stitt on corruption charges. Well, I think that that's exactly right. Joel Kinsel is going to make um, corruption in government and cronyism. Uh, and this scandal, uh, or he's going to make that a centerpiece of his campaign. And, you know, and I, I've known Joel for a long time. And if there's one adjective that I think Republicans and Democrats would describe Joe Kinsel with, it's integrity. And so he is really uh, the perfect candidate at the perfect time uh, to be able to take on this mantle of uh, dealing with corruption and rooting out all of uh, the <clears throat> these seeming backroom deals that have ha- happened over the last four years under the governor of the state administration. And, you know, all of, you know, I think that uh, Joel Kensel, if he were, um, you know, running just on that platform in a vacuum, uh, would bring pause to, to any incumbent governor. But to have that campaign operating right now in tandem with all of these revelations that seem to be coming out every single day. And my sense is that these revelations are only going to increase because now all of these lines have been drawn in the sand. Like Neva said, there was this press conference where the governor, lieutenant governor come in, they, they throw down the gauntlet. They file the lawsuit, but then they walk out with any without taking any questions. Um, now you've got uh, everybody from the former tourism director, uh, 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 Director Winchester, former Director Winchester, to Swadley's, who are all, all now on the opposite side of this with the governor's team. And so um, as investigations unfold, we mentioned the House investigation that's going to have subpoena power or the legislative investigation that's going to have subpoena power. That 
you know, I think you know, raises the question of how many Republican lawmakers um, are going to try to walk that fine line of demonstrating uh, loyalty to the incumbent governor, but trying to possibly distance themselves from this administration during competitive primaries that they're going to be facing this summer. But those in, that investigation goes along with an OSBI investigation, a forensic audit that's been requested by Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater, uh, where he's asked the state auditor and inspector Cindy Bird to begin a forensic audit of this of this deal. Um, so with all of that happening, uh, my sense is, again, we are at the very beginning of this issue and uh, how it unfolds, I believe, could have very big effect on the primary election, the runoff elections that are coming up and, and possibly ultimately the general election this fall. And I think, Ryan, I mean, when we talk about the committee, I think it is important to note when you have the Speaker of the House coming out strongly saying that they will have zero tolerance for abuse of tax dollars and that while it's law enforcement's job to figure out if you know laws were broken, it's the legislate, legislature's job to determine uh, what has happened and to do something about preventing future abuses. So I think these state agencies across the board uh, better get ready for a high degree of scrutiny and I think a lot of questions that are going to be asked. And there, the stonewalling that the, kind of this initial setup has seen, I think is uh, is going to be short lived because I think folks uh, in the legislature appear to have no appetite for putting up with that kind of nonsense. A report from Oklahoma Watch finds major mismanagement in COVID-19 funds for education. According to the story, Governor Stitt approved giving $18 million directly to families with no oversight, with the money going to buy Christmas trees, television sets, gaming consoles, and more. Ryan, what are your thoughts on the, this newest scandal involving the governor? I mean, I, I think that, you know, just when we think that there's uh, we've seen all the boondoggles that we're going to see uh, in, in, in a given news cycle, something like this drops. And, you know, again, all of these stories that we're hearing about, whether it's Swadley's barbecue or whether it's this uh, class wallet uh, deal where there's you know TVs and, and pressure washers bought with uh, with tax dollars that were meant for education relief during covid. All of this is the result of just outstanding reporting in the state of Oklahoma, you know, whether it's from the big newspapers uh, or KOSU uh, or, you know, some, some of the newer outlets, Nondoc, Oklahoma Watch, The Frontier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really the, the fact that we as Oklahomans know about this stuff is because of just dogged reporting uh, on the part of the state's media. And so I think that we all need to be grateful that we've got uh, these, these watchdogs out there looking uh, after the public interest. Um, this, this is, I think, um, one, of those, one of those scandals that I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, when, you, when you hear about this kind of mismanagement, uh, when you see that it wasn't just um, haphazard either. I mean, it was part of a plan to create a, um, uh, a model for ultimately putting more uh, long on for an ongoing basis, putting state tax dollars into a voucher system that would go directly to parents without, again, little, if any oversight. Um, so much of this comes back to now Education Secretary Ryan Walters, who at this time, whenever he was acting on behalf of the state and ostensibly at the governor's direction, wasn't an appointed official. He was a, a history teacher at that moment who'd been given this amazing power by the, the governor to uh, work through the State Department of Education to uh, to you know bring this whole plan about. 
So I think that you know we'll, we'll continue to see fallout from this um, and that Secretary Walters is going to have a lot of questions to uh, answer between now and the primary election and, and possibly uh, you know going forward from there. And, and again, with the reporters that are out trying to ask, ask these questions, we've got a situation where uh, politicians like like Secretary Walters are trying to avoid answering questions. They'd rather put out just press statements uh, and and not have an actual exchange with reporters. And frankly, if you know, again, I, I've given out a lot of free advice on this program over the years. I don't know how much any of it, uh, how much any of it has been taken by elected officials in, in either party. Uh, and just here's my disclaimer: it's free, so if you take it and it doesn't work, don't come talking to me. Uh, but <laughs> My advice is talk to these reporters. Um, you know, I, I think that you know, hiding from these questions, trying to hide behind blanket statements, trying to blame the media for this, Oklahomans aren't buying it. Uh, they they want answers to these questions. And if your answer is, you know what, we we are trying to get this money out fast, and we screwed up in some of these instances, and just own it, I bet voters would uh, be better able to swallow that uh, than to just you know have a bunch of statements pointing the finger at somebody else while Oklahomans recognize, I mean, we're all smart enough to recognize something seriously went seriously wrong here. Neva. It did go seriously wrong. And I think there are more questions than answers. When you talk about $18 million, it's not something to sneeze at. I mean, a lot of money with a lot of an accountability that now is uh, being uh, being asked. And I think, I think in the instance of Secretary Walters, so, uh, it, it's fascinating that that there was this dodge by uh, all of these parties to not answer questions throughout even this week. And now um, we saw Thursday, Thursday, uh, Secretary Walters issue this release, basically doubling down, saying that he uh, uh, stands firmly behind the governor's actions uh, to hold uh, Class Wallet accountable, this group that now they're suing, saying that they did everything wrong. Class Wallet, you know, already putting documents into uh, the public arena saying that uh, that that they have a paper trail uh, that records show that these things were, in fact, agreed to uh, by the by the secretary of education in emails. So there's going to be the give and take of who said what and 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 all of that through the legal process. But then he added the component of basically saying that uh, he wanted the media to stop harassing his family at home, that uh, that reporters apparently in an attempt to talk to the secretary had gone to his home, knocked on the door. um, And for him to now kind of inject this, I don't want you uh, harassing my my wife and and four young children into the mix and and talking about the the bent of uh, what he described as this anti school choice agenda that the media he said the media was active actively pushing i mean it sets the stage for a lot more drama and a lot more give and take because now he's thrown down again kind of this gauntlet of saying uh it's all about the liberal media it's all about everyone else uh and uh, and what they've done, not what we have done, and this will set the stage as as you said, Michael, from a from a standpoint of a June twenty eighth election mm-hmm. when uh, Ryan Walters is on the ballot uh, for the first time to try to be the Republican nominee to take on the State Department of Education as the state superintendent. Uh, it, this has to be something that's going to be a hot, intense. Uh, six or seven weeks of the end of this campaign with everyone probably trying to pile on and and uh, uh, make this a key talking point and a key campaign 
uh, attack, I think, on on the um, on the Walters campaign. So we'll see how this uh, how this rolls out. And what and again, as you say, Ryan, what other revelations come out quickly that may just add fuel to the fire on either side? Well, and there's one of the revelations that Oklahoma Watch reported uh, that I think is just really stunning is that of all of this money that the state of Oklahoma was given uh, to benefit students and teachers and education, we gave $2.9 million in unspent relief money back to the federal government. Um, to me, that's just unacceptable. Uh, you know, if, you know, to the every, you know, we're, we're basically giving that money back to other states. Um, you know, this money came to Oklahoma for the benefit of Oklahomans, you know, and, and you're, you, the idea that we don't have needs that we could have invested $2.9 million in one-time funding from taking our taxpayer dollars that we sent to Washington that have come back to us and then sending it back to Washington. That's just, you know, I, I just don't understand. I'm just, yeah, I, I'm at a loss of words. I'm at a loss of words at, at how we couldn't just make sure that, uh, you know, leaving, I mean, of course we weren't spending it very well to begin with. Uh, but the idea that we would give $2.9 million back to Washington uh, and not invest it in Oklahomans, that's as big of a, an issue to me as, as the misspending of the money uh, that, that's been reported so far. Well, and, and, and I think we didn't make a note and something that's important to say is that in talking about this, uh, this contract, with this Florida tech company, it was a no bid state contract. So again, we're opening up a whole can of worms there on why did this take place? Who signed the contract? What were what were the uh, what were the real um, elements to that contract, and how was it executed? And so we have far more questions than we have answers on this entire episode. And I think, as you say, Ryan, I think other folks will begin to look at what have other states done with their money in similar circumstances. Did they just uniformly throw the money into a circumstance like this where? Uh, families ostensibly could make these quick purchase of educational supplies online. And yet what's now being said is they basically could could use the money for anything that was on that online portal to buy. And that's where we saw all of this list of uh, certainly things that don't fall in anybody's criteria of educational supplies or anything to do with education per se. Governor Stitt signs another anti-abortion law the same day, a leaked opinion showing how the Supreme Court would likely overturn Roe versus Wade. Stitt signed Senate Bill 1503, allowing for lawsuits against anyone involved in the procedure similar to one passed in Texas. Reproduction rights advocates are already working toward a lawsuit against SB 1503. But Neva, if the high court kills Roe versus Wade, does it render moot any court challenges? I, I'm not the attorney on that, and I have no idea because I think this is something where court challenges are going to be uh, uh, more than we can probably uh, number or recount on this program at any point. But the Oklahoma Heartbeat uh, Act uh, that was signed in law by the governor was something that uh, had a great deal of support among Rep Republicans, particularly in the legislature, who passed this uh, overwhelmingly. And I, as we've talked about many times on this show, and, and certainly there is a disagreement from a public policy standpoint on, on the entire issue. But when we look at Oklahoma, Oklahoma has been intent from a legislative standpoint of being a very strongly pro-life uh, position state so that if in fact uh, the 
the high court, the Supreme Court chooses to um, rule and reverse Roe v. Wade, that Oklahoma, in fact, will become a state where abortion is completely illegal. Now, again, this will go back to the states and every state will have an opportunity to debate this and do what they wish. But right now, I think we can say, based on past history and the current climate in Oklahoma, that that this meets with widespread uh, approval and support by the majority of Oklahomans. Ryan. Well, you know, first, I just want to acknowledge uh, the the dark days that we have ahead of us in, in Oklahoma, <clears throat> that the the fear and anger uh, and desperation that a lot of Oklahoma's women uh, face and will increasingly face in the event that Roe is struck down. And we uh, trigger laws in Oklahoma that would ban uh, almost, if not all abortions in the state of Oklahoma. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, Elizabeth Warren, uh, U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, who originally grew up in a neighborhood not far from the one that I live here in, here in Oklahoma City, <clears throat> she said the other day, the majority on the bench was able to accomplish today what a majority of Americans do not want. And that's just absolutely true. Um, I think that if you, if you look at polling, the vast majority of, of Americans support abortion care rights, um, that we even see a majority of Oklahomans that support an, uh, a you know certain set of abortion care rights, um, and so you know those that have been you know largely you know fighting against abortion care um, you know have really been able to position their political platform against these <clears throat> judicial decisions that are almost fifty years old now, beginning with Roe, and I think that um, what they've been able to do is exploit for political purposes uh, abortion politics, but without ever having to face the consequences. Because we had Roe, we had Planned Parenthood v. Casey. So no matter how far the state legislature in Oklahoma wanted to go, or how far Oklahoma politicians wanted to go, there was always this constitutional backstop. So they could have their cake and eat it too. They could pass these laws. They could go out and run this issue during Republican primaries, uh, run this issue against what they believed were vulnerable Democrats. And um, still Oklahoma women had a, a backstop, a constitutional backstop, and had access to abortion care in the state. If that goes away, um, I think that what we're going, I think we're going to see politically a few things happen. Um, <clears throat> I think that there is reason to believe that there is hope and opportunity to reaffirm and, and strengthen abortion care rights uh, over the next many years, not just in the nation, but here in Oklahoma. I mean, let's remember that this has been a 50 plus year campaign by the Federalist Society and other far right groups that have used Roe as their rallying cry uh, to mount a successful campaign to capture the courts. And they did that exploiting the religious base of the Republican Party to install judges and elected officials that would support deregulation and lowering taxes. They've got that now. Uh, so that's done. Um, I think that what we'll see now is that the people that are going to continue to fight against abortion rights are going to be the far right abolitionists, uh, the people that even Republicans can't agree with in state legislatures, including here in Oklahoma. Um, so, yeah, I think that you know we are going to see more women uh, sharing, bravely sharing stories um, and defeating the stigma of abortion care. One in four women are uh, going to access abortion care in the course of their life. Most women that have have abortions already have children that they love more than life itself already. As these stories come out and we see how important this is, and the, without the context of Roe v. Wade, 
perhaps we can begin to win actual political victories in the state of Oklahoma when Oklahomans are forced to live with the consequences of having a total ban on abortions in Oklahoma. You know, it'd be interesting though, Ryan, I mean, some of these issues that for 50 years, I mean, we talk about uh, this 50 years of Roe v. Wade, but you know, throughout the 50 years, the Democrats, particularly at the national level, have fought every single restriction on abortion. I mean, uh, that includes late-term abortions. It includes uh, 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 abortions paid with taxpayer money. It, uh, it Many things, even uh, in some instances, abortions, uh, uh, the opposition of any reasonable restrictions, uh, even with regard to uh, regulations on abortion clinics themselves. So there's much to be discussed on this. It's not one-dimensional, and I think you're right. As we move forward, it's going to be a political football, not only in this campaign season uh, throughout the country in races, but it is a it is a public policy debate that is, there's probably none that is more significant that has uh, really engaged all Americans uh, with a point of view on this matter. An initiative petition to put recreational marijuana on the ballot is circulating across Oklahoma. Supporters of State Question 820 have 90 days to collect nearly 95,000 signatures. The measure legalizes the use of marijuana for anyone over the age of 21 with a 15% excise tax on sales. Ryan, I know you are personally involved with this group, so what are the chances of them getting enough signatures? Yeah, you know, full disclosure, I'm a senior consultant with the A20 campaign and have been working on this uh, for the better part of three years uh, to be able to put this question in front of Oklahoma voters. I think that there's a very strong chance that um, the signatures are collected. I've received daily reports. We began collecting signatures uh, Tuesday of this week. We have signature circulators um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma City, uh, Norman. We're going to have a statewide effort. Uh, as well, of you know, both paid and volunteer signature collection um, crews that are going to be around the state, taking this message directly to the people of Oklahoma and asking them uh, to you know give the the their fellow Oklahomans this opportunity to cast uh, a vote, yes or no, on state question come this November. Now we do have 90 days to collect the signatures, but given the fact that you know, we had a, a protest in front of the Supreme Court that we were successful in um, in overcoming. Uh, but that delayed things. And so in order to do everything possible to be able to secure a spot on the November ballot, we're not going to use all six. We're not going to use all 90 days to collect. Uh, our goal is to collect our required signatures in 60 days or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully sometime, you know, mid-June, uh, mid to late June, we'll be submitting sec- uh, signatures, the, re- the required number of signatures to the Secretary of State's office um, and believe that getting there, at least, you know, based on these early day numbers, uh, even at the outset, when you're still kind of working out some of the, the kinks in the campaign, really strong results. Uh, I don't think we're going to have any problem getting there with signatures and really believe that this is an important step uh, in our, our maturing marijuana policy in the state of Oklahoma. It'll bring in tremendous amount of uh, revenue that we're currently just losing uh, by not being able to sell to those without uh, medical cards. And I think it'll give the legislature an opportunity uh, in, in, in future sessions to come in, uh, because this is a statutory initiative, to continue to, to modify the program uh, as it moves forward so that we can keep pace with developments on the ground as they occur in Oklahoma. So um, I think we've got a very good shot of making this happen. Of course, I'm, I'm biased uh, in that regard. <laughs> Neva. Well, I I would agree that, I mean, the 
signature gathering process. I mean, and this uh, uh, trying to get it done in 60 days, I think is certainly um, uh, a, a large, uh, a large hill to climb, but, but you do have the buffer in that the 90 days does take it to, to August 1st. And I know from what you're saying, Ryan, it certainly complicates the scenario of any hitches that come up that would um, slow, that would come up against the deadline to get it on the November ballot. So um, but in this instance, I think it will be fascinating to see where Oklahomans really come down on this. I mean, we're talking about legalizing adult use marijuana, full blown. Um, and, you know, as we've talked about previously on the show, I mean, the fact that that Oklahoma voters said that they would support medical marijuana and that that passed. And in the years since then, we've seen uh, Oklahoma be, I think, the highest state, I mean, in terms of numbers of medical marijuana cards, um, I mean, per capita, I think we're number one. So the argument, I think, in the challenge uh, in this whole legalization effort is whether or not in the minds of voters, we already have that. And I know that there are other dimensions to the to the uh, state question, this 820, that will provide this pathway for uh, drug offenders to be able to get some of their offenses either reversed or expunged. And there are some other uh, dynamics. And I think you're right, Ryan, in terms of the legislature, they certainly see the opportunity to modify and be engaged in the legislative side of it. So there's lots of moving parts. I think the first, the first, uh, uh, part of this process is the signature gathering. And I think the other point is, and I don't know uh, if you can speak to it or not, but you know, we still have these other two competing um, yeah. uh, potential questions, state questions out there. Uh, where is that in the process? And are we going to have competing uh, state questions on this single issue, potentially on the November ballot? Right, Ryan, those other state questions did get approval from the Supreme Court as well. They got approval from the Supreme Court, but if you'll recall, one of the things that the Supreme Court did was they struck a section from one of those ballot measures, um, and it's been unclear uh, whether that struck section has to be removed by the proponents of those two initiatives, whether the Secretary of State removes that section, whether the, the court will submit its own draft back to those proponents to then submit to the Secretary of State's office. There's some other issues because there's another section in one of their uh, those initiatives that references the section that was struck by the Supreme Court. What do you do there? Um, so there are just some, you know, some administrative issues that I think have to be cleared by those campaigns before you'll see the Secretary of State's office set a signature collection date. My sense is that given uh, the large number that they have to collect, I mean, you know, we're going to try to collect, right. you know, close to ninety-five thousand, uh, and we'll have a buffer that we turn in as well. Uh, but, you know, our, our goal is, you know, 95, 96,000 signatures. They're upwards of 190,000 signatures on each ballot measure. Um, and so being able to do that without a signature start date yet seems to suggest that even if they are out collecting signatures later this summer, uh, their ability to make the November ballot almost seems impossible at this point. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.